Before we get into the episode, I'd like to take a moment to say thank you to all my listeners. The support has been so much appreciated since I began the podcast a few months ago. The one thing I do ask is that will you please, if you enjoy the podcast, hit the follow button on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast from. It really, really helps the podcast grow and it only takes a second. would really appreciate if you could do that for me. Thank you. Also, in the episode description, I have put a link if you fancy donating the price of a coffee towards the running costs for the the podcast. Absolutely no obligation to do so. This isn't about the money for me, but if you feel you want to make a little contribution towards the costs, the option is there to do so. But again, absolutely no obligation to do so. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Spud Talks Football, the first one of 2024 after a Christmas break. And this week, I'm delighted to have a, a very good guest called Niall McCon. Niall is the presenter of the brilliant award-winning Premier League podcast, Football Social Daily. Niall, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having us, Mark. Or should I call you Spud? What are we going with? Oh, whatever makes you happy, mate. I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll tell you what makes me happy is that really golden intro you just did so appreciate it and appreciate you listening to our podcast as well means a lot to us and uh me marley and joel put a lot of time into it so it's great to know that people like yourself enjoy it which is um yeah it means a lot to us oh i'm not just saying it because you're here talking to me i'm I'm a huge fan of your podcast (laughs) i i I love i love the content i look forward to every episode and it's uh no you cover a lot of ground and it's you give very honest opinions, even if you're talking about the clubs you follow yourselves. Like it's very, like you're very non-biased. Like it's really good, and yeah, I'm a big fan of it. So I'm kind of looking forward to uh, going a bit in depth with you about uh, a few of your football experiences. Um, what I like to do now, lad, just so the the listeners kind of get an idea who they're who they're listening to, I like to get my guests to kind of give a little background run of what kind of where you grew up and who you supported as a boy and what kind of how you started to kind of get into football. Yeah, so I'm a Portsmouth fan, first and foremost. I never actually grew up in the city of Portsmouth. And I think that's quite an interesting story in itself because I think people don't realise how many Portsmouth fans there actually are around the world. Portsmouth is a south coast city and it's the home of the Royal Navy, which obviously is quite a big employer in the city. The army also has a base there. So a lot of expats have a fondness for Pompey or support Pompey because of family, friends, neighbours, cousins, whatever you want to say, that have been in the military, whether that's army or navy. So we have quite a lot of supporters all over the world, just purely through the links back to the city, whether that be from working in the navy or not. There's kind of a running joke around the city that everyone knows someone who's worked in or been associated with the navy in some way. And that's no different to me, even though I didn't grow up in Portsmouth itself. My granddad was from the city and worked in the dockyard Uh, ended up getting a job at the Ministry of Defence and he was bouncing around as you see a lot in the military you see people move from base to base so my granddad was based in Portsmouth he moved up to Scotland he was in Kent for a while another part of England he was in Malta um, went to America a lot so he was all over Um, but he always carried that love for Pompey in his heart which was passed down through to my dad and to me and my brother as well. So kind of Pompey fans by virtue of supporting the same team as what my dad and my granddad supported. But um, I did live down there for a little while as well. And I've always lived close by, even if if not within the, 
the Pompey <laughs> city boundaries, if you will. I've always lived close by. So that's the the story, really, of how I became a Portsmouth support, supporter. That's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, because you forget about that with Portsmouth being such a South Coast club. Like, you forget how much they'd actually pick up with just people walking in the area and stuff. It's very true, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. And I think is it's one of those where in Portsmouth, you very rarely see Liverpool shirts or Man United shirts or Arsenal or Chelsea or whoever it might be. Effectively, it's one of those places where if you're from Portsmouth, you support Pompey. And I think that's quite rare nowadays. You don't really see too much of that. And yeah, you do see the occasional Arsenal shirt or Chelsea shirt, I suppose. It's the same as any big city in the country. But the majority of people on the island, and we say on the island because people don't realise Portsmouth's actually an island city. Um, it is separated from the mainland by water and connected by two bridges, which a lot of people don't realise. It's the only island city in the UK. I did and not know that. It, yeah, so a lot of people don't realise the real name of it is Portsea Island and Portsmouth is the city that sits on the island. So there's a lot of history around um, how Portsmouth came to be and obviously its naval links have strong ties with the football club as well. But yeah, generally, Portsmouth's one of those places where, you know, if you're from the city, you support Portsmouth Football Club. And I don't think there are too many places like that in the country. And I think that's kind of where a lot of the passionate support stems from, really. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And I suppose because there's probably there's probably only Portsmouth in the town as well. So, like, so say if you do get the local people following in Birmingham or Liverpool, there might be Everton, there might be Liverpool, there might be... West Brom, they might be Wolves, you know, but I suppose going up in Portsmouth, you're right, yeah, everyone follows Portsmouth, so it must be really good. Is it like one of those, um, is it one of those town cities where, like, the football club is the hub of it? Yeah, the heartbeat, mate, of the city, 100%. Um, it's been described as that by so many different people. Um, a good friend of mine, Neil Allen, is a local journalist down in Portsmouth, and he wrote a book called Portsmouth, the island city with a football club for a heart, because... There's something about Pompey. And like I say, I mean, I live in Manchester now for the last five years, which is where we do the podcast from. And there are four pillars of Manchester for me. It's football, food, fashion and music. In Pompey, the four pillars are football, the Royal Navy, family and uh, and probably community as well. I mean, it's just it, there's something about the city which is hard to explain and unless you've lived down there for a period of time or you've spent some time around people from Portsmouth it's quite difficult to get to grips with sometimes but it's certainly one of those places where it does grab you and the kind of the spirit around the town is the spirit around the city is dictated by how Pompey are doing and unfortunately from my perspective we've not been doing that well for the last few years <laughs> languishing down in the bottom two divisions but um, hopefully we'll find our way back again but yeah football club's massive um, and to be honest the fact that the city and the football club share the same nickname um, Portsmouth as a city is referred to affectionately as Pompey uh, and so is the football from, team yeah. yeah so well well do you know what there, there's no no one really knows where it comes from um, there are these old like nautical maps where there's like a sign on the end of um at the end of the city that says it's kind of it's Portsmouth Point is like the, the on the map and it's abbreviated to pom.p so people think that that's where pompey comes from but actually there's there's no real um clear cut history as to where the nickname pompey comes from but that is our nickname and you know I wouldn't have it any other way to be honest the kind of way like depending on which old fella you meet in the local pub each of them will have their own version of where it came from yeah, so five <laughs> yeah. Different versions kind of thing. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's enough pubs in Pompey as well. I think that there's, or there was before, obviously pubs have started to close because of problems in recent years. But I think there was more pubs per square mile than any other place in the UK. So um, there's the, you, won't, you won't be um, hard pressed to find somewhere to have a beer in Portsmouth. <laughs> and no lamb kind of around the time like as far as you can kind of remember where you would have really kind of really started getting into football where were Pompey and the kind of the pyramid at that stage so we were always a championship team mark to be honest we were always a championship team that were struggling to stay in the second division actually the amount of times that we would end up in a relegation scrap I remember us staying up on the last day on goal difference there was a, a crucial game against Stockport County I seem to remember um that was you know, quite famous from from the late 90s that we ended up getting a result in which helped us to stay up. Steve Claridge, who is probably one of the most well-known football league journeymen, is actually a, yeah. a Pompey lad and a Portsmouth fan, came to us in our time of need, really, and scored a few goals. John Aloisi will be familiar to any Australian listeners as well, um, scored a few goals for us back then. So we were always a, a team that was struggling to stay in the championship. Our attendances were nowhere near what they are now, to be honest with you. And we were stuck in a rut. Um, yeah, I mean, we were getting 10, 12,000 at home. Um, we were stuck in a rut, really, in terms of being in the championship. And then it all changed when the club was taken over by Milan Mandaric, um, yeah. who since went on to buy Leicester and Sheffield Wednesday as well. Um, and then I Harry Redknapp was, was in, in Leicester, actually. Yeah, 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 Leicester. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, Harry Redknapp was installed as director of football, and it, it simply put, just wasn't working out. We had we had some quite high, pro high profile managers. Alan Ball, who of course won the World Cup with England in '66 as a player, um, he was our manager for a while. Um, one of the few people that is well loved in both Portsmouth and Southampton, which very rarely <laughs> happens, obviously, with our yeah. rivalry with them is massive. Um, and then we had Graham Ricks as well i think did he manage england at one point i can't remember or he was involved he was in or arsenal or something he was in yeah he was he was arsenal. Arsenal anyway, but he, i think he might yeah. have been assisted in england too possibly yeah i mean well I yeah graham ricks was our manager anyway i can't really remember because i was quite young to be honest and obviously yeah. since then his career has taken a downturn which we won't go into now for, for various reasons yeah. but um yeah he uh he's he's an interesting um an interesting character and and you know, he was manager. It didn't really work out. And then Redknapp stepped down from director of football to become the manager. And that's when it all changed, really. So, yeah, when I first started becoming aware of, of Pompey, um, we weren't a particularly great side. So I think that's kind of the way it, the way it should be. <laughs> yeah. It kind of keeps you grounded, doesn't it? Yeah, 100 yeah. percent. Not like Joel, by the way, who whose first game was probably a 4-0 win over some <laughs> poor Premier League team that he's battered. Yeah, that's it. And I think the, the the ones that are used to that success are probably suffering more now than anyone, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so, because uh, that was it. So when Redknapp took over that team, was that was that your first promotion then when you had, like, um, say, Paul Morrison, Todorov? Um, was yeah. that that? Or had you kind of gone up and down a couple of times before? And I can't remember now. So that was that your first kind of real big promotion push under Harry Redknapp? Yeah, absolutely. He stepped down from the director of football role to take on the manager role. And it felt like straight away that we were challenging at the top end of the league. And actually, you mentioned Leicester there. It was us and Leicester that season, I think 2002, 2003, where we ended up winning the championship. We had players like Merson. We also signed a fresh-faced 19-year-old Yakubu from a team in Israel yes, who came and just kind of completely changed everything as well, scored a load of goals. Him and Todorov were kind of the main goal scorers. We had Matt Taylor, who went on to play for Bolton and West Ham. Yeah. 
Um, he was our left back coming through. Gary O'Neill, the current Wolves manager, was part of that side as well. Shaka Hislop, who will be known to any Americans, yeah. um, obviously for his work on ESPN as a pundit nowadays. He was our goalkeeper. And Harry Redknapp's a well-connected guy, of course, had managed West Ham before, so knew people in the game. And I think that's why we got Paul Merson, because you mentioned him. He only played one season at Portsmouth. And I think he's mentioned himself that it was one of his favourite seasons as a mm. player because no, nobody expected Portsmouth to get promoted that season, even though we had Redknapp and even though we made these signings. I think we were expected to be sort of in and around the playoffs, but to win the league in the way we did was unexpected. So, yeah, that was an amazing season. And I think the fact that it was unexpected made it a little bit sweeter. Yeah, definitely. You just mentioned about Paul Morrison there. And um, in his book, he actually speaks about it that season. And he just says, he just he's he always says he reckons he played his best football at Villa because he was just getting a lot of his problems sorted for a while at that time. But he says his favourite season at any club um, was was Portsmouth. He said the season was just, but he was unbelievable. Like he was far too good for the championship. Like at that time, even for Villa, yeah. he, was too, he was too good for us when he came to us. And that, that's that's not true. He nearly dragged us. He took us to the top of Christmas under John Gregory one year. He was just a phenomenal footballer. And and to go down to the championship and do what he did, just just amazing. But even even Todorov. Like what? Like he he had an unbelievable season that year. Like yeah, yeah, he was amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing, Toddy. Um, and it was a bit sad really because when we got promoted to the Premier League, he got injured and never really rediscovered his form that he was hitting in. I always thought he might have been just one of those players, you know, the way they come up and it just doesn't work for it because they hadn't heard about him in long time. Is that what happened? He came up and got injured. Yeah, he got he got injured and. Yeah, he got injured and obviously Yakubu was still at the club and had an amazing start to life in English football, scoring loads of goals. So, you know, when he came back from injury, he had to try and displace Yakubu. And then Teddy Sheringham was signed as well in the summer between us getting promoted and then starting our first season in the Premier League by Harry Redknapp then. So that's another sort of season striker to try and get past. And, you know, I felt a bit sorry for Toddy really because... He scored so many, and he's still a legend at Pompey and everyone loves him. He just never really rediscovered that form and then it kind of fizzled out for him. But I guess that's the ruthless world of, of Premier League football. And, you know, when we did get promoted, the likes of Sheringham and we had Steve Stone in our team as well. I think we even signed Tim Sherwood. Just kind of gave us that bit of experience and stability, which helped us stay up in the Premier League, which was obviously the the initial aim. And, you know, we had a few close brushes with relegation in the early years, but then we eventually ended up establishing ourselves, which was... You know, amazing at the time. Coming up, coming up like that, your first year, whatever about the promotion, but those first year or two, you Harry had not perfect manager in that situation because he'd have, yeah, he'd have yeah. the connection. He'd convince the lads to come and you know the likes of sharing them and Sherwood because you need that. You need you need that bit of experience. Like I know you find the odd club that can do it on a whim a little bit, but most clubs have a few uh, a few experienced old heads to help them through the promotion, to, to, the, the the first year of promotion. You know what? Um, when did you kind of start to think, well, we're starting to really kick on here? Like, you know, after promotion or prim- first couple of seasons in the Premier League, is there is there a period where you kind of thought, oh, yeah, we've joined the party, you know, we're, we're, we're going places here? Well, do you know what? That first season in the Premier League was a lot better than I think most people expected it to be. Actually, the first season was more comfortable. It was the seasons after that, a bit like kind of what you've seen with Brentford. And, you know, remember Sheffield United in the Premier League a couple of seasons ago where they came up, finished 10th, and the next season they were in the relegation zone. That's kind of how it worked for us, really. First season, we actually finished 13th in the Premier League table above Tottenham, above Man City, obviously pre-money, above Everton, above Blackburn, and Leicester were the team that came up with us, and they got relegated, as did Leeds United. 
down to the championship. So we finished above some, even though it was 13th, we finished above some pretty decently sized football clubs in that first season in the Premier League. So I think, you know, I think we got a result. I think we beat Manchester United at Fratton Park that season as well. Um, that was the season Arsenal did the Invincibles and Robert Pires had to dive for a penalty at Fratton Park to try and beat oh, us. Yeah. Never forget that. Um, so, yeah, um, we had some really good games in that season. Um, we, we, we did as well as we could have hoped for. We got 45 points, which is, you know, the magic 40 point mark. Um, everyone says to kind of keep yourself safe. So that was amazing that first season. And the next couple of seasons were much tougher. There was a, a time when we sort of needed some some really big results. Pedro Mendes came through for us and scored some stunning goals against Manchester City at Fratton Park to get us a crucial three points. And the great escape was on. Um, West Brom were also down there fighting for survival at that point as well. And they ended up scraping through and staying up in the Premier League. So, yeah, we struggled the first few seasons. But, you know, as far as we were concerned, we weren't really supposed to be there. It was only after that that Milan Mandaric, when he sold the club to Sasha Geidemak, that we started to establish ourselves in the Premier League and and look upwards with Harry still being the manager, albeit with a brief departure to those lot down the road in the meantime, yeah, which we won't discuss, <laughs> which caused a lot of chaos at the time, I can tell you. Oh, I'd say, I'd say that was pretty frowned upon, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And you know what? Harry Redknapp, I don't think he even realised the hostility between the two clubs. He lives in Bournemouth in a part of Bournemouth called Sandbanks, or he did at the time anyway. And apparently most days, some Pompey fishermen or some Pompey lads would get on a boat and kind of <laughs> sail to Redknapp's back garden and just heckle him and throw things at his back garden, basically, to remind him of the uh, of the error of his ways. And you know what? Even though he came back to Portsmouth Redknapp and won us the FA Cup, he is still a massively divisive figure amongst our fan base. Some fans have still never forgiven even though he won us the FA Cup some fans have still never forgiven him for going to going to their place um and yeah okay he came back and won a trophy some might say all is forgiven but and and Southampton went down actually the season that Redknapp went to manage them but still some people still haven't forgiven him it's still a pretty sore subject yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that we talked about forever because I suppose, as you say, it, it'll be, there'll be a split. There'll be the people who think, well, probably the, he probably gave us the biggest moments in our recent history, probably two of the biggest moments in your recent history, getting that big promotion. And then, as I'm yep. sure we talked, alluded to, talked about in a minute, they're going on to win the FA Cup. So there's probably one generation that are, one split of fans are kind of like, well, all is forgiven. Look, look what he done for us either side of that. And then you're going to have someone that really... Lads who would have taken a lot of stick at work from Southampton fans and different things who may never forgive him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So he still says that, you know, he thinks fondly of his time at Pompey. And to be honest, when I think of us winning the FA Cup, I don't think of Redknapp straight away, which is interesting because, you know, sometimes you think of the manager straight away, don't you? But in terms of that FA Cup win, I think more of the players that we had and the team that we had rather than the manager that we had, which I think is interesting. But that remains Harry Redknapp's only trophy in English football. And he is still the last English manager to have won the FA Cup, which is insane when you think about it. it that is absolutely insane. I didn't even know that because I, 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 like, there's the, always the regular stat about like, oh, no English manager ever won the Premier League. But when you think of it, was that, was that 2008, I think? So if they're, Yeah, 2008. They're, there hasn't been an English FA Cup manager winner since 2008. That's absolutely insane. And um, yeah. just on the build-up to that, because you were talking about the players that year, but I think that Pompey side became one of those uh, 
teams that kind of come around every now and again where they kind of become everyone's second team, everyone's kind of rooting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there, there was serious character on the team I, we talked about on, on your group chat recently there about the, uh, the, the like Sully Montari and all them lads, all brilliant footballers, like, you know, and I think they gripped a lot of people, like football, genuine football fans who obviously love their team, but then the next, the next, like the lads who love football as well, and I think Portsmouth really kind of got to, the, got to them. I know, I, I know I loved watching them play, like, because a lot of the time they were, their games were really good to watch as well. Like it wasn't just like not like yeah. everything with eleven men behind the ball and rooting out results. They like they really went for it in a lot of games. Like, yeah, we had an amazing away record that season as well. I think we went to St James's, which I love reminding Marley about. By the way, who's our Newcastle <laughs> fan on our podcast, and we beat them three nil. And I think we were three nil up inside half an hour or twenty five minutes or something. And this was just like you couldn't believe it. You know, Pompey beating Newcastle away 3-0 St James's Park it's as far away as you can go as a Pompey fan if you're a travelling supporter doesn't get any further up the other end of the country than that so to be 3-0 up and we're picking up some really important and really convincing away wins which was so exciting to watch and such a joy to be a part of as a, as a supporter and you talk about some of the players that we had you said Montari there a lot of people say even though he played well, he, he played in two seasons, but we signed him in January and then sold him a year later, the next January. From uh, We signed him from, I think, either Chelsea or Arsenal. I can't remember because he played for both. But that was Lasana Diara. Oh, yeah. And then a year later, we sold him to Real Madrid for 20 million quid. And we're still scratching our heads now, sort of 15 years on, thinking, how did Portsmouth sell someone to Real Madrid? And for 20 million quid as well. There's a lot of money back then. Big money back then, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... Well, but that just, just goes to show of the brilliant little, uh, not to the cliche, but Harry's wheeling and dealing, you know what I mean? He's like, he he, put, he pulls off very good deals, like. So for the club to then take uh, a bit of a spot like that from Harry, then make money off it by pushing on to Madrid, massive dealing. I think Everton done something similar with Thomas Gravison as well a few years ago. And just, just amazing, yeah. um, just amazing, really. And when you see, the, you just don't expect those players like from our clubs to be going to Real Madrid, you know? No, exactly. And you know what? If I look at that team, even if you look at the sort of reserves from that era, some of them have gone on to have really have really good careers. We sold Glenn Johnson to Liverpool and he did great there, even though they weren't as successful as they are now when he was there. He had a, an excellent career for England. Look at someone like Asmir Begovic, for example, who was our reserve choice goalkeeper, has gone on to play hundreds of Premier League games since then, Suleiman Tari, I think we sold him to Inter Milan. And did he win the treble under Jose Mourinho? I think maybe. I'm, I'm not so sure, but he definitely played in Milan. He definitely played for, for AC Milan as well. So, you know, these players moved on to some pretty big stuff in their career. And we were quite blessed to see them, really. Because when you think back, Portsmouth aren't supposed to sell players to Real Madrid that's not what it's supposed to do you know you you don't see that now in the Premier League really you don't see clubs like Fulham or Crystal Palace selling players to (laughs) European heavyweights it just never happens so yeah we were I think kind of aware of how blessed we were to have those sorts of players but we probably weren't so aware about how much of an impact that was having behind the scenes and then obviously it all unraveled pretty quickly after that. Yeah, that was going to be my next point. I didn't want to bring you too, down too quickly from the high of the FA Cup. <laughs> it's very relevant. So uh, obviously things started to take a bit of a turn for the worse after that. So do you want to just give a little rundown of what actually kind of happened there from, say, from then on and kind of a bit of a timeline from the FA Cup on and stuff? 
Yeah, so it all goes back to the ownership. And this is why on our podcast, Football Social Daily, I'm so vocal and have been over the last few years about making sure that we have ownership regulated in the Premier League. So we talk about the fit and proper persons test. It's not fit for purpose and hasn't been for some time now. And I'm not talking about the Saudi takeover of Newcastle and finding loopholes and stuff like that. I'm simply talking about some of the smaller clubs in the English pyramid that are owned by people that are not suitable to own a football club. And this happened to us not once, not twice, but a multitude of times with multiple different owners. It all started, as I mentioned, with Milan Mandaric, who owned the club, sold it to Sasha Geidemack. And when Sasha Geidemack came in and owned the club, that was when we started spending a little bit more on players and getting some of these big name talents in. And of course, it helped us get into Europe and it helped us to win the FA Cup. The issue was where Geidemack's money was coming from. So Geidemack's father, Arkady Geidemack, was arrested for selling arms illegally. And Sasha Geidemack, his son, always said, I don't use my dad's money. I'm my own man. I've got my own bank account. This will not impact Fort Portsmouth Football Club. But all of a sudden, the money dried up. And it turns out Sasha was using his dad's money to help fund Portsmouth Football Club. So when Arkady Geidemack wow. had his assets frozen, the money stopped. And when the money stops at a Premier League football club, you know what the money's like in the Premier League now. And it was pretty hefty back then. We had players on significant wages. People like Sol Campbell, who of course was an invincible with Arsenal, was now playing at centre-half for Portsmouth. And yes. he was on decent money. And so were some of the other boys on decent money as well. And Fratton Park's a small ground, 20,000 seats. Tickets were reasonably priced. You could get a ticket at Fratton Park for 20 quid back then. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like people were being priced out of watching their team. And commercially, we are one of the smallest clubs in the Premier League at that point. We're not making as much money off the pitch as, as Premier League clubs do now. So as soon as that funding stopped, things really started to spiral. It's like pulling the plug out of a bathtub full of water. Um, yeah. It goes down a lot quicker than you think. And that kind of put us in real, real trouble and not sort of 18 months after winning the FA Cup, the club were plunged into administration and struggling to find someone to take over from Sasha Geidemack to own the club because no one wants to buy a basket case club. And then we went through a host of owners. Mark, it was ridiculous. We had a guy called Ali Al-Faraj by the club and he was nicknamed by the fans Ali Al-Miraj because no one's ever seen him. Nobody ever knows if he actually exists. He was just this random kind of Emirati guy who came in. Just, just a name. Yeah. No one's ever seen this man. He, he might not even be real. We still don't know. But the Premier League was so desperate to get this kind of Portsmouth situation sorted because it's embarrassing for them to see one of their clubs financially struggle and go into administration. They just passed whoever they could through, sort of ushered them through the door pretty quickly. And it turns out this person wasn't even real. Then it was sold to another guy called Suleiman Al-Fahim. He apparently did have money, but once again, similar situation. It wasn't his money. He actually embezzled a load of money from his wife and he's been put into jail for that in the last few years. So this is this is a situation where once the club gets into a certain position, the only people that are interested in buying it are people that you don't want involved with a football club. Yeah. Naturally, we got into administration, the first and only Premier League team up to this point to go into administration. We had points deducted. And as soon as we went down to the championship, I think the Premier League were breathing a sigh of relief because they were like, right, it's not our problem anymore. And yet this continued with uh, a Lithuanian banker called Vladimir Antonov. He was arrested for asset stripping Lithuanian banks. Um, so, you know, he was our owner for a while. So then we got plunged into administration again when he got arrested and put in jail. So we had a real sort of 
who's who of crooks and bandits and wrongens running our football club. And so sort of two and a half, three years after being a Premier League side, we had spiralled all the way down to League Two. And things got so dire that the situation went to the high court. Our latest owner at this point was a guy from Hong Kong called Balram Chanrai, who was adamant that he was the right man to take the club forward, despite the fact that he clearly didn't have any money or was the right person to take the club forward as well. And then it went to high court and the fans basically sat up and said, enough is enough. We've had enough of this. And the Portsmouth Supporters Trust, all credit to them, released a share scheme in which thousands of Portsmouth fans put in a thousand pounds of their own money to buy a share in the club. They raised enough money to convince the high court that a group of fans, a community trust, a supporters trust would be able to take the club on and run it effectively. And it would have the best interests of the community at heart. And it was crazy at that time because we were waking up in the morning, not knowing if we had a football club to support. It really was that close to oblivion. So credit to all of those Pompey fans that put their hands in their pockets and saved their football club. I don't think many people can say that. So yeah, Um, what a fall from grace from us. But I'm thankful that it all came together in the end and just goes to show how much of a slippery slope it can be in football if you don't have the right people in charge at your football club. It really is that simple. And the the worst thing about that, Niall, for me is that no lessons have been learned. You only look now in 10, 12, 15 years on and Look where Reading are at, and I had a, I had a guy from Sheffield Wednesday on, and they're through at the moment going through an awful row. I've had him on the podcast recently, maybe in the third episode, and he was telling his story the roller coaster they're going, currently going through with their owner, and it's yeah. just it's just where the lessons being learned. Reading, Carlisle, Bury, then the, the list goes on and on. I mean, you were probably the one, you were probably the flag bearers, you know. And you think, especially with the Premier League, you think like that, you know, the Premier League are the ones with the money, you know. And I'm not saying it's all on them, but when it happened to a Premier League club, surely someone should have said, whoa, like this should not be happening to a Premier League club. Look how much money we have floating around. And as you say, it was just kind of shoved onto the championship. And oh, it's not our problem anymore, it's the EFL. And it's just, where are lessons being learned? It's, it's, it's shocking. It's, it's, it's really bad. And it's something, as you were saying, that you feel very strongly about. It's something I felt very strongly about a long time. I've had a couple of people on the podcast to speak about the same kind of thing of the, the, the way the clubs are being run and, it's just, it's terrible. And 99% of the stories just comes from bad owners. Like, not bad decisions, not bad, just bad owners. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel, I feel and you can't, for people. And as well, Mark, you can't expect the fans to have an awareness of all of this. You know, we're just enjoying the ride at the time. And we always hear, you've described him as that today. You know, Harry Redknapp, a wheeler dealer, and, you know, he can't read and write and all of this stuff. And, oh, how have Portsmouth managed to win the FA Cup with all of these players? And, you know, people sometimes, particularly them lot down the road that wear red and white stripes, they say, oh, you cheated your way to an FA Cup. Well, some people might see it that way. But as far as we're concerned as supporters, we're not privy to what goes on at boardroom level. We don't know. And, you know, it's not up to the run of the mill Everton fan or Nottingham Forest fan to have a grip on their club's finances. That's the trust you place and the faith you place in the people that run your football club to do the right thing. 100%. It's not up to the fans. Yeah, the fans are there to support the team. I like that, you know what I mean, and and support the revenue, and you know turn up every week, you know. And look, uh, some of the modern fans are probably maybe a bit too quick to go on social media and shoot their team down and stuff. But there, there, there is a lot, a lot of proper fans out there, and it, you don't want to know what's going on behind the scenes. Like you're, you're not, you're not buying a ticket to know. But then it gets to the point where something is wrong, and you're kind of like, whoa, what has been going on here the last five years? Like it's the same happened with Villa. Like sure, people don't realize how close Villa was yeah. to be going in 2018. Uh, you know, yes, yeah. yeah. You kind of had to 
kind of had to get promoted, didn't you, to the Premier League, really, to kind of bring that extra money in. It was just, yeah. but again, like you say, because it because it happened, people forget about it, and it's kind yeah. of, you know, unless something actually happens. So you know, it's this whole thing with the Everton points deduction as well, which we discussed on our podcast, and I know a lot of people agree. The Premier League, I think, probably gave Everton the harshest punishment they can. It's almost like a scaremongering tactic for other clubs, you know, to kind of whip them into shape behind the scenes. Um, and it's unfortunate that Everton have to be the full guys because I, I don't agree. I think 10 points is a monumentally harsh punishment. Like we went into administration and got docked nine points. They've missed, uh, <laughs> they've lost a little bit too much money and they got docked 10. So it's just, it's just crazy. And I, I don't think that there's any logic or sense there's there's no plan in place behind the scenes you know so many things have changed since Portsmouth went into financial trouble between then and now no less the amount of money that's in the Premier League but especially when you think about the history that these football clubs have like in American sports and we see a lot of American sort of venture capitalists investing in English football clubs now or investing in the game in this country in some way they have franchises and their links to the clubs are not as strong as we feel to our football clubs in, in yeah. Europe. They're just simply not. I mean, these football clubs, so like Pompey, for example, is 125 years old this year. I mean, I can't tell you what the oldest baseball team or NFL team is, but it doesn't have the same connection to the community as it does in Europe. It just It just doesn't. And I think that sometimes people, when they're in these big positions in boardrooms, they don't understand actually what it means to a community over generations. I spoke about my my dad and my granddad being Pompey fans. I'm sure my great granddad was a Pompey fan as well. <laughs> it's probably how it always worked. You know, it kind of passes down through the generations. I don't think sometimes people in suits understand that they don't get the connection between fans and club, and that's so dangerous. Yeah, I know. I don't think they care anymore. Don't I? That's that's the reality of it. It's become so much about money now. Like, I, like I, you, you look, and I don't want to keep going back to Villa, but it's obviously relevant for me. And you look at, at what they're doing at the moment. Like, so of all the places they could have put new corporate areas to try and get Villa's revenue up, they have to put one right in the middle of the whole thing. You shouldn't touch. Yeah. You shouldn't touch. Absolutely. I yeah. think it's happened at the Stratford and the United as well. And it did. Like, yeah. 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 Do, do you think the Liverpool fans have put up with them putting that in the cup? Absolutely no way. It just it just wouldn't happen. Like. Just mm. like it's just, yeah, and it, like you, and they wonder why the atmospheres would start to die a little bit in stadiums, and that's the reason. And yeah. I, look, I understand you need corporate, like the way, especially now and, with the F, FFP being kind of pushed a lot more. The clubs like Villa need to get their revenue streams up. They just have to, and there has to be creative in how they do it. But and do you know what? There's so many examples of that. You say like corporate seats in the Stretford end at Old Trafford, or some in the Holt end at Villa Park. You look at Birmingham City, who have been taken over by Americans recently, and they've changed the stadium name, haven't they? I can't remember the name of the sponsor, but the ground's now called St. Andrews at such and such park. So it's got an extended name. Yeah, They've kept St. Andrews in the name, but they've got the sponsor name in there. They could just call it sponsors St. Andrews, like, I don't know, Knightsbridge St. Andrews or whatever the name of the company is that sponsored it. But instead, they've gone for St. Andrews at Knightsbridge Park or whatever it's called. And it's just ridiculous. And that's why I'm quite thankful, even though Portsmouth is owned by an American investment firm. We, when we were taken over after the, the trust decided to sell the club to the American investors in 2017, the Americans decided that they were going to create a heritage and advisory board. And I'm so glad they did because I think that's absolutely crucial because it gives fans a chance to veto any huge changes to the club, whether that's the name of the club, the colours that the club play in, 
the style of the crest, the name of the stadium, the colours of the seats. For instance, I went to uni in Cardiff and Vincent Tan, who I think still owns Cardiff, the Malaysian guy who yeah. uh, who owns the club, changed the club's yeah he changed yeah. the club's shirts from blue to red. The club's nickname is the Bluebirds, and he changed their shirts to red. <laughs> and I, I just think this guy, because he owns the club, was allowed to go in and do whatever he wanted. And the Cardiff fans hated it. They absolutely hated it. Yeah, he just erased it because he happened to be the owner of the club. And I always use the word custodian because I think when you are the owner of a football club, you're not the real owner. You're just a custodian. You're just the next person looking after it before you pass it on. It's like being a, an antique collector. You know, you look after it, you polish it, you service whatever it is, like an old watch, and then you pass it down to the next person who you can trust will look after it. You know, it's not a toy, a football club. And I think sometimes people use it as that. And so as I was saying, the the Pompey ownership when they took over in 2017 created this Heritage and Advisory Board because they know the pain that the fans had been through before. And they recognise that changing things like the name of Fratton Park or the colour of the kit never goes down well with fans. And so yeah. these things, you know, go to a Heritage and Advisory Board first and will be given a vote. And there's a veto there from supporters. If they don't like it, they don't have to let it happen and i think that that was a smart move and it's sad that we don't see that happen at some of the bigger clubs as well because you know if you had a heritage and advisory board at aston villa or a, or a fan advisory board at aston villa that had a you know kind of a, a a weighted vote in boardroom meetings when the conversation comes up about putting corporate seats in the whole tent the fan board can just put their hands up and go, it's not happening, lads. It's not happening. Sorry, put them somewhere else because it's, you're not putting it in the whole tent. But unfortunately, it's like once these decisions get made, fans sometimes are a by, a, you know, a, a by thought. They're not, they're not thought of. Um, but yeah, you're right. We should probably come to expect that now. It's been happening for long enough. Yeah, it, it is. It is sad, and it's just look uh, until until the Premier League grow up here. But and uh, I think uh, and the EFL is just going to continue to have keep going. Unfortunately. Um, Loyal, you mentioned there a while ago about college, mate. Um, I, I just that that was kind of going to bring me on to my next kind of uh, subject, which uh, tell us about how you started getting into your media work, mate. So I've always been involved in media in some ways. It's a bit weird, really. Um, I went to uni in Cardiff, university in Cardiff, and I actually did English literature because the way I started in media was at school. Um, the school I went to is no longer there anymore. It's been flattened and <laughs> shut down and rebuilt elsewhere. But um, there was a, a teacher, he's passed away now, but I, I, I wanted to mention his name called John Griffith. Um, what a lovely man he was. And there was a, an empty classroom at school that was kind of just left disused for a long time. And he approached the school and asked him if he could turn it into like a recording studio, like, you know, like musicians would go in and, and record stuff. Uh, so that the music students could then sort of take a CD home with them or a tape home with them at the end of their two years or three years at school of studying music, if that was what they chose to study, they could go and take something away with them. And the school went, yeah, that's a great idea. They got some funding, they found some outside funding and they went and installed this music studio. But one of the sort of caveats to, ha to that being there was that they needed to kind of make more use out of it. So they started this school radio station. And my cousin, who's good few years older than me said that I should definitely do it because um you know it gave him a bit of confidence and I was into music and my brother's massively into music as well uh so I went along and then started doing sort of school radio when I was about 11 so I did that for, oh, for really? three or four years till I was about 14 so I've always kind of had an interest in in media and radio just just from that really um 
And then, yeah, I went off to, to sixth form and, and kind of carried on and um, did a little bit of radio here and there, just sort of volunteering. And then went to uni, did student radio. And that's where I decided that I wanted to go into sports media because I'd never really thought to combine the two. All the radio I was doing was all music stuff, playing the, the songs that I like, etc. Um, trying to impress my mates and all that stuff. The usual things you do as a teenager, yeah. <laughs> play the songs that everyone wants. Um, <laughs> and then uh, as I was at uni, I got an internship at the BBC. I also did a, a student radio show on sport with my good friend, Mike, who's from Limerick, actually, um, in Ireland. We get on really well uh, still to this day. And uh, yeah, just just from there, really, I thought, well, why have I never thought to combine sort of my two passions in life, which is sport and then at that point, radio? Um, and then, yeah, I kind of followed that. So I did some some volunteer commentating for Pompey Women. A, a guy I knew was uh, looking for a commentator. He said, listen, I'm desperate, need someone to do it. I was like, I've never commentated in my life. I've done a bit of hosting here and there, but I've never done it. Um, we went down and did a Women's FA Cup game, loved it. And it kind of stemmed from there, really. Within a couple of years, I was commentating for the first team and then ended up living the dream, really, because left uni was still doing a bit of freelance work at BBC, just answering phones and stuff and um, that sort of thing, you know, making cups of tea, you know, that's how you always start in this industry. And then um, eventually sort of lived the dream, as I said, by the time I was 22, 21, I was commentating on Pompey winning the League Two title. So it was amazing for me, but that's kind of, that's kind of how it all started, really. It was, it was just kind of a, um, kept working away and, and got the opportunity and the fact that I got to commentate on my team winning a, a league title was just amazing. I'll never forget that day, even though it makes me cringe listening back to the commentary now a few years on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll never forget that feeling. It was amazing. Uh, like, like for your break, for your break to come with your own team is pretty special, like, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. Um, the only thing is, I'll probably still be there now. That's the only thing. You know, if your break comes through your own team, it's amazing. But I think it's also a bit of a catch-22 because you know, it's your dream job. And I don't think I would have ever left Portsmouth or left commentating for the club if I wasn't sort of forced to make that decision a little bit later on in my career. Um, so it's one of those things. Um, it's an absolute dream. But at the same time, you know, as far as the reality is concerned, Pompey are a League Two, League One club in the last 10 years. We're still trying to get to the championship now. Um, and, you know, if you want to be sort of going for it, you need to be going to the biggest games and sadly Pompey against Oxford on a Tuesday night isn't the biggest game <laughs> going as much as it is in my mind um so yeah uh I loved it absolutely loved it but I'm kind of glad how things have worked out and been up in Manchester now for the last five years doing the podcast and some other stuff as well so yeah it's worked out all right you um would I be right in saying I think from memory sorry you you've commented on Man United TV as well is that correct yeah, MUTV a few times, yeah. Um, I don't know when this is going out, Mark, but it's Wolves against Man United tonight, so I'll be doing MUTV for that one this evening as well. So, yeah, I do a fair bit there. So, And you know what? It's quite funny that I work for MUTV because the first Pompey away game I ever went to was at Old Trafford. It was in the Premier League. It was 2003, I think. I, was, I think I was nine years old. We lost 3-0, got battered 3-0. Van Nistelrooy, Diego Forlan, Roy Keane scored. Um, lost 3-0 so then to sort of be able to go back there 20 years later and sort of look at the seat I sat in as a little kid watching Pompey 
yeah. to be able to cover games at Old Trafford. Yeah, it's, it's been amazing. I can't lie. It's really that, cool. That is amazing. And um, can you just, if you don't mind now, because um, it's very interesting, Like, can you tell us a little bit about how, oh, say you, 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 you mentioned tonight, I didn't know that you're commentating on uh, Wolves and Man United tonight. What's your prep? Like, what do you have to do? Like, what, 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 what's a couple hours before the, the commentary of the game? What, what, what do you have to do to set yourself up? Yeah, well, that's the tough bit is the couple of hours before the game because you're obviously waiting for the team news to drop and you kind of hope that you have a bit of steer on team news. You speak to people around the club and you kind of figure out who's playing if you can a little bit before the team news comes out. But actually all of the hard work is done in the days leading up to the game. And that's what I think people sometimes don't see is, yes, it's a 90-minute football match, but you need to do all your preparation, all your research. And often you're doing research that doesn't get used. So I'll have a couple of pages of notes. I'll have notes on players. And you've got to remember a match day squad is 18 players. A full squad is about 25 players. So you're doing research on seven players and not all of the subs will come on. So you're doing research on players and taking time out to kind of make sure you get the stats right and find some interesting pieces of information. Sometimes you might not even use that. And actually, particularly if you're doing a radio commentary, you'll probably use about 10% of your notes. The rest of it's just there just in case. A good example would be if you were commentating on a cup match, let's just say like the Carabao Cup semi-final, for example, if you're commentating on that, the game might go to penalties, but it might not. But just in case it does, you have to do research on the last penalty shootout for each team, who takes penalties, goalkeepers, which goals, um, which side they like to dive, how many they've saved in their career, whether they've come up against this team before, the last time they were in a penalty shootout, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, that's all the things that people don't see. And I think that's the preparation side of it that goes into doing a commentary and actually being involved in the game. I love I love the live element of it, the rush of being able to call a, a really good goal. That's that's a buzz that you can't replicate anywhere else. And for me, that's why I do it. I, I mean, people say to be a commentator, you need to love the prep. I'm not going to lie. I'll be honest. I don't really enjoy doing the prep. That's a tough bit for me. I love doing the games but you need to do the prep to have a good game. And that's what makes yeah. it enjoyable. So there's loads of different ways of doing it. Loads of commentators do things differently. They prepare differently. Like for example, Martin Tyler, who's a legendary commentator, the internet didn't exist when he started commentating in the seventies and eighties. So everything was done pen and paper. And I still do my notes, pen and paper, but obviously I use the internet to get all of my information. I use social media. I use um, news websites. I use Twitter sometimes actually to see what the fans are thinking going into a game. So, you know, these are all things that Martin Tyler, for example, or Clive Tildesley, two legendary commentators, wouldn't have had at the start of their career. So it's all pen and paper. And I remember during lockdown, I saw Martin Tyler was doing an interview with someone. He was on a Zoom call and he was sat in his home office and behind him, all three of the walls behind him were just stacked with notes, wow. files, documents from i think i saw one behind him that was season 81 82 you know that it, all of the games that he had done all of the information was just there in a file so that you could go and grab it off the shelf and have a look and do some cross-referencing for example if he's got a game between two sides that he remembers commentating in the 80s you know he can go and have a look and see who the goal scorers were and stuff like that whereas now wow. everything everything's done on the internet so so commentating has changed a lot um over the years but yeah it, it's all of that information all of that stuff that you try and find that maybe people don't realize you know so you know if the game doesn't go to penalties and you've prepared two sh two um pages of notes on penalty shootouts then you know 
some might say, well, that's a waste of time, but it's not because football's so unpredictable. You don't know. It might, it might go to penalties, you know, like how many commentators now are going to Southampton games, just checking the latest when the last nine nil was (laughs) (laughs) just in case it happens again. Do you know what I mean? Because there was a, there was an eight nil this season in the Premier League, wasn't there? I think Sheffield United got done eight nil, but I'm sure whoever was commentating that day was probably thinking, oh Jesus, I need to, I need to quickly <laughs> check up when the last, you know, what's Sheffield United's biggest defeat, for example, you know, that sort of thing. It's a good point too, because you were saying there, like, oh, there's 18 in a matchday squad, there's 20, 25 in a squad. It's true yeah. because I suppose as a commentator, there could be two young lads who, you know, are unlikely to get on on the match day. But if they do, if they do and you're caught on the hop, you need to be able to give information about them. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. The youth players is when it becomes quite difficult. But thankfully now there are so many people that are so involved in the game. There's so much analysis and stats that you can find the information. It is there, but it would have been much harder back in the day, pre-internet, to be able to figure out who these young talents were and what they were like. And I guess that's part of the charm of watching old highlights from back in the day that people kind of like Norman Whiteside for, for Man United kind of burst out of nowhere as a youngster, scored an amazing goal in the FA Cup against Everton, I think, when Man United won it in the 80s. And I think that that doesn't really happen anymore because people know who Garnacho is or Mayno is, to use a Manchester United example, coming through now because they've watched under-18 games, they've heard about them on social media. So, you know, it's almost like someone coming from nowhere isn't really a, a thing anymore. But, you know, like to use Wolves for an example, um, it's transfer deadline day the day we're recording this and they've signed someone uh, on the 31st of January. So the research I did earlier this week, I'm now going to have to do a little bit more to figure out who this new player is and where they fit into the side. They might not even be in the squad. They might not even be in the squad. Yeah. Yeah. But just in case they are, and I'm sure it will come up in conversation. There'll be a talking point about signings and you can mention it then. So it's one of those things where you need to be prepared. And I'll be honest, and I'll totally admit, I'm still quite early in my career doing this. So there are things that I miss. Sometimes I watch back a game and I think, why didn't I say that? I should have said that. That was so blatantly obvious to kind of add a little bit of colour to what was going on on the pitch. So, you know, sometimes I miss stuff. All commentators do. I think what's funny with commentary is everyone's got an opinion. And I think that's absolutely fine because it's like anything in life. You know, it's like comedians. If you, you, you wouldn't buy a ticket to go and watch a comedian that you don't like. You can't find everyone funny. You know, yeah. some people when I was younger used to love that comedian Lee Evans. I just didn't understand it. I used to think he sweat and pulled funny faces, and that was it. Like yeah. I just didn't find Show, him funny at all. Here and there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, some people love Michael McIntyre. Not for me. He's not my sort of comedian, and I'm not going to be someone's type of commentator. And that's absolutely fine. You can't be loved by everyone. It's the same as as any entertainment business, really. And um, yeah, it's it's just one of those things. It's. Uh, it's kind of the variety of commentators. We've got so many of them now in the game, so many good ones as well, that um, you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And that's all right. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm enjoying it, though, loving it. So, yeah, it, it's it's a great job. It's a great job. That, get, get, getting paid to talk about football, man. It's, uh, it, yeah. it, it is a great job, isn't it? And it's, um, is, it, it, is it hard to talk for the 90 minutes, though? Like, do you, it, is there much gap filling? I always find that when you're doing a radio commentary, the co-commentators there to kind of fill in the gaps for you because you need a breather. You can't commentate for 90 minutes straight. It's just so difficult. Just, yeah. But with, with TV commentary, sometimes I think there is a danger that commentators do say a little bit too much. And I've fallen foul of doing that sometimes as well. But I think a lot of the time, people know what they're watching. 
you know, football fans aren't idiots. They know when someone's played a good pass or they know when someone's struck the ball well. And I think that that's part of what I'd like to see a little bit more of from pundits on telly. So like, for instance, Alan Shearer, Premier League's record goal scorer. I don't know whether Shearer can talk to me tactically about what was done during a game to help a side win. But what he can do is talk to me as a viewer about technique. So he can talk to me technically, but not tactically. That's how I see it, because this man scored more goals in the Premier League than anyone else. The way that Shearer could strike a ball was phenomenal. And so that's what I want to know. I want to know what you know, you need to do to keep the ball under the crossbar from 35 yards on the volley. Because every time I try and do it, it ends up 20 feet over the bar. You know, know. So do you know what I mean? That That's what I want to know. I want to know why, you know, a goalkeeper's taken a jump to his left before diving the other way, you know, to, to make an amazing save. I want to know why that's so good. You know, that that's, that's the insight I'm looking for. And um, don't always get it. Sometimes you do. But, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of, that's kind of a, a, I guess, a facet of the of the modern scene in in football media. I understand exactly what you mean, though, because I remember one of my favourite bits of punditry I've seen uh, or listened, listen, watched, and listened to was uh, I don't remember if remember a few years ago when um, Alvaro Morata signed for Chelsea. And yeah, he was, having, he was having a bit of a barren spell at the start. And then he came good for a spell, as he does throughout his whole career, where he goes through these big spurts where he just scores goals mad. But this was his first kind of spurt scoring goals for Chelsea. And he, I think it was a 2-0 win against, against Stoke. But he picked up the ball and, and he travelled. But he kept the ball on the outside of his foot. And he ended up scoring a brilliant goal. And if you get a chance to, to Google this bit of punter, it was really good. But Thierry Henry was in the studio. And he started explaining that people don't understand how hard what he did was to do the, mm. and to do it that pace and Henri started explaining how he does it and how he how he was drawing in the players to skip past and I just thought it was an absolutely brilliant piece of punditry and stuff you don't it's the insight you don't get too often there, a lot of them these days don't don't give that you know even even in the, 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 the Sky pundits who have all played ball you don't get that insight about why, why they're doing what they're doing but Henri explained it really well of why Murata why he kept the ball in the outside of his foot and everything, and if you get a chance to have a look at it, it's it's really really good, like. So so I yeah, understand, I understand what you mean there about getting a bit more insight of the stuff that the average footballer who wasn't good enough to do this stuff. Why, why is this man able to do it, like? Yeah, exactly. That stuff, that's brilliant. That's what you want. And you know, I used goalkeepers as an example a second ago. The amount of times that you see goalkeepers bouncing on their line rather than standing still, there is a reason for that. Is they're not just doing it for you know, the sake of it, you know, it's, it's to give them a bit more spring and to give them a little bit more energy to bounce to one side or the other, to spring one side or the other, to try and make a save. I mean, that's, that's just kind of the technical side of it that maybe you don't always see, because I think when you work in football, in terms of being a coach and you're on the training ground every day, some things are just basics that you expect everyone to know, but actually a lot of football fans don't know. They don't know what makes something amazing. And that's why that, that, sort of piece of punditry that you highlighted there that's why i'd like to see a little bit more of that to be honest with you because everyone can tell you that someone pinging the ball in from 30 yards is an amazing strike of course i know it is because i saw it i watched it just like you did i want you to tell me why that's difficult or you know why he struck the ball in a certain way or what well, part of you know, the foot he hit the ball to make a divot like that or yeah 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 exactly i mean marcus rashford does this thing where when he shoots, he can get the ball to bounce in front of the goalkeeper. So difficult to deal with as a goalkeeper because you don't know whether it's going to knuckle ball or not. And, you know, that's a technical thing, which 
um, some people might have noticed that maybe doesn't always get highlighted. And you see it now as well when people are trying to curl the ball into the corner, uh, using defenders as a screen and stuff like that. You know, you know the goalkeeper can't see if the goalkeeper takes a takes a uh, a little bit too long to dive. He's not going to get there. That sort of stuff. I mean, that's that's the thing that I want to see really a little bit more of. No, brilliant. I, I totally agree with you. And uh, it was good to get a little bit of insight out of the commentary. Uh, you're the first commentator on the podcast. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> thanks for that bit of insight. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, um, Noel, because um, I really appreciate you giving me time. But I couldn't let you go without having a chat with you about the podcast, if you can, if you don't mind sticking on for another for a couple of minutes. Absolutely. So tell us about the podcast. And for those maybe that haven't listened to it, do you want to give it a bit of a plug? Because any football fan out there, I do genuinely, and I'm not just saying this because I have Niall here, I do genuinely tell you, if you're a fan of the Premier League football, get onto this podcast. It's really, really good. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, so the podcast is called Football Social Daily, and we've been doing it since 2018. It actually spawned out of a radio show we used to do here in Manchester called Manchester Social Daily. Uh, okay. No, I can't remember what it's called. No, sorry. Manchester Football Social. It's been that long ago. I've forgotten what the bloody show was called. <laughs> Manchester Football Social is what the radio show used to be called. And it was every day, six till seven on the radio. And it was a space for Man United and Man City fans to call in to talk about their clubs. We would get fans in the studio. We would get sort of pundits, um, one blue, one red, and they'd kind of have debates and stuff like that. And then when the show sort of drew to a, a natural conclusion, we knew that we had a decent listener base out there already. So we decided, why not? turn it into a podcast and instead of going Manchester City and Manchester United let's just go full bore let's go do the whole Premier League so the original name for the show was Premier League Daily for our first couple of months and some of the long-time listeners will remember when it was Premier League Daily um, but we got a cease and desist letter from the Premier League's lawyers saying you can't call your podcast this otherwise we'll sue you <laughs> into oh, really? oblivion oh, yeah so we changed the name um to football social daily we kept the social element from from manchester football social we dropped the manchester and it was a daily podcast and we spotted a niche in the market for a premier league podcast every single day of the season and for the first three or four seasons we did do that a podcast every single day including saturdays and sundays and it was tough it was really tough but we love doing it and we still love doing it and it's gone through a few changes um we've had a few different sort of pundits and and guests over the years from former players to sort of some of the lads from the office that used to support different teams. We've had sort of all sorts of different football fans in the studio and on the internet, uh, you know, sort of on video call helping us um, make the show. But as it is now, it's it's me and Marley who have been involved since 2018 still and Joel who came on board in 2020. Um, the three of us, we've sort of taken the podcast under our own wing. We streamlined it down a little bit and um, yeah, still producing content every day on the Premier League, talking about all of the big top flight discussion and, and talking points. So, you know, I'm a Portsmouth fan. Marley supports Newcastle. Joel supports Manchester United. And we like to try and be as fair as possible. I mean, there is a bit of bias. Of course there is. I mean, Marley loves Newcastle. Joel loves Man United. And that's naturally going to creep in. But we like to think that we kind of bring a bit of balance to some of the conversations and you know we're not reactionary but you know we also like to kind of give our opinion on things that sometimes don't get talked about on other podcasts like uh you know political elements in football club ownership as we've discussed on today's show um you know racism in football these are all things that we've discussed on the podcast in the past and i think that if it's needing to be talked about we will talk about it and yeah we love it we love doing the show i mean i mean to to 
boil it down to the bare bones. We're just three lads who love football and really sort of love talking about all of the drama in the game and all of the big talking points in the game. So yeah, we've been doing the podcast a few years now. We've got listeners from all over the world and we, we're just so thankful for it. And, you know, people like yourself who who listen to the podcast, you know, we're, we're really, really thankful for that. And the support we've received has been absolutely amazing. And I'd like to think we are just three normal blokes. You know, we're not sort of lads who think that we're more important than anyone else because we've got a podcast that people listen to. It, it very is very much just is us three with our opinion. And some of them are absolutely terrible. Some of Joel and Marley's opinions. Mine are obviously spot on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um <laughs> but you know that's just how it works when you when you have a podcast. So um so yeah, loving doing the show. We're gonna carry on doing it as long as we can. Obviously Marley's got um he's gonna become a father for the first time. So we're all getting a little bit older and a little bit creakier as the seasons tick by, but we're gonna try and do it as long as we can because we love doing it. And, and I, I love listening to it, man. I'm sure many of the others do. And if, um, if, if people want to find it, where can they find it? Just need to search for Football Social Daily wherever they listen to podcasts. It's available on all the big platforms, Spotify, Apple, etc., etc. And we're getting a new video studio built as well. So we might even have some sort of YouTube, TikTok content coming in the near future as well. So keep an eye out for that. But just search for Football Social Daily wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find it there. There'll be, a, just to the listeners here, anyway, there'll be a link in the description for this episode anyway, and I do advise you, go give it a go, because once you have a listen to it, you're, you're, you're going to listen to another episode after that. It's really, really good. <laughs> um, right, Noel, I, I can't thank you enough for giving me your time, mate. It's, um, it's, uh, especially on a busy day when you're going to be commentating on a Premier League game tonight as well, so to take a bit of uh, the time out of your day to come on my podcast, I'm, I really, really appreciate that. And um, I wish you all the best, and I look forward to hearing more content from you, and I hope you'll come Thanks. on again. And I hope you'll come on again in the podcast down the line. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having me on. We'll be more than welcome. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to come back on again. And um, yeah, I need to go and speak to those two Muppets now to talk about what's happening on transfer deadline day. So <laughs> I'll speak to those two idiots, Marley and Joel. We'll do our podcast and then, uh, yeah, down to uh, Wolves against Man United tonight. But thanks for having me on and speak to you soon, mate. Appreciate it. No worries, man. Thanks again. Take care. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Please hit the follow button on Apple and Spotify to help the podcast grow. And if you could share the podcast with me to help me get it out there, that would be much appreciated. If you're on Twitter, give me a follow. It can be found under Spud Talks Football. Thanks for listening.